Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Winston was in Victory Square before the appointed time. He wandered round the base of the enormous fluted column, at the top of which Big Brother's statue gazed southward, towards the skies, where he had vanquished the Eurasian aeroplanes, the East Asian aeroplanes it had been a few years ago, in the Battle of Airstrip 1. The buzzwords of it, the concepts it creates, just its set phrases, have been absorbed into the language. You know, he just lived through the Blitz in London, where this kind of anxiety and fear and destruction were very real and very recent memory for people. One of the things I think the novel is really good on is the anxiety of existing in a structure that feels unstable. From Winston's apartment on and up, you know, that the lift doesn't work and that the whole building's a bit rickety and you hear bombs falling everywhere. But also that metaphor is that the power structure is also unknowable and unstable and unreliable. And actually, like, ignorance is a kind of strength in that world. It was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. That's the opening line of George Orwell's 1984, dystopian novel, political fable, and chilling portrait of a totalitarian police state. It was written immediately after the Second World War, and it's a stark, prophetic warning of the ways in which humanity can be corroded by power. It's a gripping novel that has introduced phrases into the language such as Big Brother, Room 101, Thought Crime, and Doublethink and it was described in The Independent as the book of the 20th century. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode I'll be creeping through the dingy, dirty streets of one of the most populous cities in Airstrip One, a province of the superstate Oceania. Victory mansions were old flats, built in 1930 or thereabouts, and were falling to pieces. The plaster flaked constantly from ceilings and walls. The pipes burst in every hard frost. The roof leaked whenever there was snow. The heating system was usually running at half steam when it was not closed down altogether from motives of economy. We're standing outside this mansion block of flats, Langford Court, uh, just off Abbey Road in St John's Wood in North London. And I'm delighted to be joined by this episode's guest, 
Robert Icke, the theatre director. Robert, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Robert was the associate director of Headlong Theatre Company, and for six years he was the associate director at the Almeida Theatre in Islington in London. Among his recent productions are The Oristeyer in 2015, Uncle Vanya in 2016, and Hamlet in 2017 with Andrew Scott playing the lead role. He's directed plays at the National Theatre in London, on Broadway in New York, in Amsterdam and Basel. And in 2013, he staged his award-winning adaptation of 1984, which he co-adapted and co-directed with Duncan Macmillan. Rob, it's so brilliant that you could join us here today. Thank you for joining us. Would you introduce us to the world of 1984? What is this world that Orwell takes us into in this novel? It's a weird mixture of a projected future, a world where there's been some sort of nuclear war, seems to be the implication, where Britain has become a colony of America. Mm-hmm. In fact, just an airstrip, just a landing place for aeroplanes. Um, the world split into three great superstates, which are always at war with each other. Misinformation is rife. The population are suppressed, but sort of self-suppressed. Um, and I think, I think, I mean, we'll come into this as we speak, I'm sure, but one of the interesting things about working on the novel for such a long time is you realise how much of the things people think about it are not true. Mm. Famously, it's a world under perpetual surveillance, which makes it sound like it's it's the sort of surveillance we now have in modern China, for example, where it's state-organised and state-insisted upon. And I think I'm right in saying in Oceana, they all buy the telescreens. The telescreens were opt-in. Mm. And it's to do with their sense of fear and their sense of threat and wanting to protect themselves. That's a fascinating distinction. And one thing that people say about 1904 a lot is how prophetic it is. And the constant news articles saying how we're living in a 1984 almost every day of the week. But maybe the, the surveillance is such a pervasive aspect of this novel. And, you know, the fact that we're all glued to screens today that we've bought, that we're proud to have, maybe that is uh, one element of the prophecy of the book. So, okay, so we know that George Orwell lived here during the Second World War during the Blitz, and so we can imagine him looking out of his windows here across London as, uh, as it was being attacked. And it's a tall, rather impressive-looking 1930s block. It's brick with white stone detailing. And his novel, 1984, opens with the protagonist, the main character, Winston Smith, arriving home to his apartment block, which is very similar to Langford Court, which we're looking at now. And it's amazing to imagine that character, Winston Smith, pushing through those doors. And there's this terrifying atmosphere that it creates, described as a vile wind which rushes in with him through the doors. And then the, everything in the flats is falling apart. And on every landing, there's this peeling poster of an enormous face, the face of Big Brother looking at him. And so, you know, Big Brother, such a familiar turner. Who is this Big Brother in the novel? He's, he's the leader, he's the great leader, but quite quickly in the novel you're told that maybe he doesn't exist. Like most things in the book, there's a question about, the endless existential questions about what is real and what isn't real, including sometimes the things that Winston thinks and feels, and, and whether you can ever have any ownership over even your own impressions of the world or whether they can be placed there by, by somebody else. And the great fear is the thought police, I think, which you get really early on in the book. Mm. The idea that they can read your thoughts and maybe even plant your thoughts. Mm. Rob, your production of 1984, it was co-produced by the Nottingham Playhouse 
the Almeida Theatre and Headlong, and it toured around the UK twice. It had a long extended run on the West End and played on Broadway, and I think it toured Australia as well. And America. <laughs> it, 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 it did everywhere. a lot of... Um, lots of people saw it. Which My favourite uh, claim to fame it has is that apparently it made Jennifer Lawrence throw up in the audience True watching story. your production. True story. <laughs> Were um, you there that night? or I was not there that <laughs> night. America had a really interesting and extreme reaction to it, which we didn't expect because by then it had done three separate chunks of the West End in, in 2014 and 15 and 16. And so by the time we got to America, we sort of thought we knew what could happen right. on that show. The thing I underestimated, or one of the things I guess, was that American theatre is not very violent. Right. It's emotionally violent. So like if you go and see your Eugene O'Neill or Arthur Miller, you're uh-huh. used to families being horrible to each other, but you're not used to people getting their tongues cut out and fingers cut off, which because we all get taught Jacobethans, we're kind of like, of course, yeah, there's 11 stabbings and then right. they throw right. the dismembered hand and you're like, yeah, 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 that's just going to the theatre. And uh, we had a, as in the novel, there's a sort of torture sequence in the play. You don't, you don't see anything, it's all... You're told what's going to happen. You're then asked to imagine it, basically. And America panicked. Like, people screamed. People ran up the aisles. Like, people were physically sick. Uh, other That's bodily incredible. functions came into play. Um, it was sort of extraordinary. Yeah. And they used to... It was, Trump was obviously not long in in 2017, and that was quite, that was quite raw still. One point in the torture scene, O'Brien says to Winston, Winston, what year is it in the play? And someone in America shouted out, it's 2017, and it's fucked up! Wow. And wow. There, was, there was quite a bit of that. There was quite a bit okay. of really quite amazingly extreme audience interaction. And that, that persisted throughout. Um, that timing with Trump, that's fascinating, because we certainly noticed at Penguin that when Trump was elected, the sales of 1984 went through <laughs> the roof. It was like everyone... You know, needed to sort of read the handbook of how sure. to deal with this. Well, although although that said, I mean, I always think it's that claim that Orwell makes that that really good writing is clear and mm. that you can see through a good sentence like a window pane. Mm. That whole mm. thing, it's just not true of 1984 <laughs> in that it's so ambivalent about almost everything. And I'm not sure I know of other novels that have been claimed forcefully by the political right and the political left. Like, everyone seems to think it agrees with them, which is an extraordinary double trick to pull off. Mm. But the dramatic structure of it is basically you're watching the radicalisation of a terrorist. You know, Winston says he's prepared to throw acid into children's faces. sulfuric acid. I mean, he's a rubbish terrorist, luckily. You know, he's given one job, which is he has to read the Brotherhood book and he doesn't do it. He gets halfway through. And I think it's hysterical, but again, it's so... The, the, the level of irony in the novel, I think, has been underrepresented because people mm. just think about surveillance and dystopia. Mm. And when we were in rehearsals, I think it won an award. It was the book most people had lied about having read. <laughs> really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Which is kind of great, isn't it? That's it's amazing. Like, yes, a, a, it's perfect Again, for the iterating novel. the idea of people not finishing the book yes, yes. the book itself has got this status that's like, amazing everyone thinks they've read it I, I'm sure that's right that you know it's a very familiar name but I think also your production was so clever because it played with ideas of surveillance and you know us as an audience in the dark watching these scenes unfold and mm. I want to talk more about how you tackle different aspects of a novel as we go sure. through today but if, if listeners get the chance to see your production I highly yeah. recommend it it's extraordinary so the novel starts here at Langford Court with Winston Smith coming home from work in his lunch break. And he comes home for a very specific reason. He comes up to his apartment and he starts writing a diary. Orwell says, the thing he was about to do was to open a diary. This was not illegal. 
Nothing was illegal since there were no longer any laws. But if detected, it was reasonably certain that it would be punished by death, or at least by 25 years in a forced labour camp. So after he's started his diary, he sets off from his flat and heads back to work at the Ministry of Truth. So let's follow his commute and head to the Ministry of Truth ourselves. The Ministry of Truth, mini-true in newspeak, was startlingly different from any other object in sight. It was an enormous pyramidal structure of glittering white concrete, soaring up terrace after terrace, 300 meters into the air. Okay, perfect. Great, thanks. So we're introduced to the place that Winston works from his apartment. He can see it across for cityscape. But we've now travelled, as he does, and we're standing at the base of what is today the Senate House Library of University College London, which is this extraordinary, formidable-looking building, which was completed in 1937, so quite a recent uh, building when Orwell was writing. And it really is, you know, exactly as Orwell describes, isn't it? It's a soaring white structure, huge tower in the centre of London. It would have been one of the tallest buildings in London at the time. And, you know, it's unmissable. It's a real landmark in this part of London, in Bloomsbury. It's forbidding. It has small windows all over it. And this was uh, the location during the Second World War of the propaganda department, the uh, Ministry of Information. So it was kind of gift to Orwell, really. You know, he, he was um, this incredibly striking, dramatic building, home to this rather sinister, genuine department called the Ministry of Information, which, of course, was very one-sided information. So it, it was a short step to turn this building into the Ministry of Truth in 1984. And there's a, there's a kind of urban myth that... Um, that Hitler had his eyes on this building to be the headquarters of the Nazi party once he'd invaded Britain. We're not quite sure whether that's um, true, but you can imagine why uh, someone with a taste for monumental architecture might want to be situated here. Rob, what is the Ministry of Truth? What does Winston do here? Winston is part of a team that rewrites news archives, basically, isn't it? He uses sort of what feels like microfiche technology and sort of remakes news articles to remove people who've sinned against the party and been unpersoned. A sort of like primitive version of our deep fake technology. Right, right, yeah. exactly. He sits at his little desk, doesn't he, and, and, and clippings from the Times get popped out in front of him. That's right. With a note, with, and sometimes they're easy, they're just like, delete this name. Sometimes he has to rewrite the whole article. Which is extraordinary, really, and that's one of the things I think where the word prophetic maybe is is the right word, and you think that's what the digital age, what the online world has done to news and the, yes, the right. difficulty of establishing what did actually happen. And, you know, one thinks of Trump inauguration, him saying it was the best attended ever, the pitcher saying it was the worst attended ever, Kellyanne Conway saying the president had his alternative facts. You yes. know, like, that really yes. all feels in the territory of what Orwell's thinking about. And the fact the ministry is called the Ministry of Truth. Yeah. yeah and, and truth is really... Truth is constructed in the novel by the ministry, not not respected. There's this terrifying moment where um, someone is talking to Winston and says, do you realise that the past, starting from yesterday, has actually been abolished? Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book has been rewritten. So it's it's almost as if the whole world is reinvented mm. every moment. And it, it does feel a bit like social media, doesn't it? The way it's endlessly refreshing and it's this kind of 
sandbox for you know whatever anyone's thinking at that moment. There's no long view taken in that. That's right, and, and there's also no balance. In the, I, th- I think I'm right in saying that one of the people that Winston on persons early on in the novel or is involved in the unwriting of is someone who's won medals and things for the party. Yes, right. And so there's like they they quite happily get rid of the loyal. Well, I think it's what he wants to write his first diary entry about, isn't it? He gets hold of a photograph. He sees that's a photograph right. and he knows in that moment that this <laughs> yeah, memory right. he has of this veteran who's now been... But even then, it's sort of it, that is a distant memory, isn't it? Because he remembers yeah. seeing it. Yeah. This photograph of, of Jones, Aronson and Rutherford, right. who were super on the party side and then were said to be traitors. And then, But you're like, you've only got his deeply unreliable memory. Yes. In the version of the novel, which... I quite like partly because it's a kind of filmic grammar I think we all understand now but where he's tested by the party to see what he will sign up to so you offer him some counter evidence mm. and you say that's not there it's, it's the 2 plus 2 equals mm. 5 test mm. are you willing to like respect the party over the evidence of your own ears and eyes and you do wonder whether a doctored photograph of some people who are supposed to have been executed being in the wrong place at a time they couldn't have been at that place is just a test to see whether he'll be like okay well that can't be true which is the correct party response. Uh-huh. And that two plus two equals five is a really interesting motif that Orwell mm. comes back to again in the book. And I was reading about it. It, 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 was, it was an idea that had been around for a while and, and writers like Dostoevsky and Turgenev had used that two plus two equals five to show how sort of absurd and overpowerful um, government could be. Mm. And there was even a Soviet slogan saying two plus two equals five because they, they were on a five-year plan, but they said, you know, if we... We can do this five-year plan in four years. That's so it was hilarious. like two plus two equals five. Huh. And it's the same with those contradictory slogans of the party, like war is peace, freedom is slavery, and so on. Because they're obviously nonsense when you see them written, but then in quite sort of creepily persuasive ways, Orwell shows how they can make a kind of sense. Well, and, and even in ignorance's strength, you sort of feel that... One of the things I think the novel is really good on is the anxiety of existing in a structure that feels unstable mm. from Winston's apartment on and up, you know, that the lift doesn't work and that the whole building's a bit rickety and yes. you hear bombs falling everywhere. But also that the metaphor is that the power structure is also unknowable and unstable and unreliable. And actually, like, ignorance is a kind of strength in that world. Yes, and if you right. just, if you just live... You just you just live according to what you're told, and every day the chocolate ration rises to 50 grams, except it's always been 50 grams, and it's never like, it rises to the same as it was. And if you celebrate that every day, you feel great. Yes. Like, it's sort of this a lovely way to exist, um, as long as you can not know. One of the most dramatic expressions of that sort of ritualistic ignorance is the um, two minutes hate, which happens each day in this building that we're looking up at now. Mm. Well, and it seems like across the whole Across the whole country, city, I yeah. think, yeah. And uh, it's when people gather in front of a screen to be shown the, the face of Goldstein, who's, who's held up as this kind of rather anti-Semitic yeah. other you know, the other to Big Brother that everyone screams and shouts at the screen and sort of, it's almost like a cathartic um, release of all the pent-up frustration and energy of their lives. The party has managed to harness it and focus it on this perceived enemy. And there's that awful uh, bit where Winston says, you know, the worst thing about the two minutes hate is you can't resist it, that mm. you're in, you have to be in the room. And even if you don't want to, you get caught up in the, the sort of energy and the, the, the fury of others until you find yourself shouting at the screen. It's a scary scene, and it's, it's strange to imagine it going on behind these very tiny little 
slitty windows in the um, in this. Building. Well, and it feels almost cliche to say it, but it feels like the kind of the, the power of collective hatred has found its modern expression in social media, right? And the ability yes, of people across right. the world to get together and like try and destroy yes, the same individual course, or yes. condemn a certain action or, or, or set of beliefs or whatever. Like and it often lasts the equivalent to two minutes, doesn't it? Right. It's a kind of storm in a pan, and then they move on to the next object. Yeah, like a dead body is left, yes, yes. <laughs> the next person is selected. And yes, th- that is true. interesting, I think, because I think it's sort of... He's not optimistic, I don't think, all well about human nature. And then in the two minutes hate, there's this sort of just bilious yes. contempt that everybody in the room feels. It's not just the football hooligans, you know, like the whole society comes together in this weird stoning ritual sort of metaphorical yes, stoning right, ritual right. it's bleak I think that bit of the novel but also feels truthful yeah well especially today in the description of that scene he catches the eye of another important character in the novel and we maybe don't want to say too much about him but it's a character called O'Brien who is a senior official of the inner party he's on a sort of structureless government which in fact has a deeply endemic structure O'Brien is one step above Winston and he's a very ambiguous character he's introduced like this O'Brien was a large burly man with a thick neck and a coarse humorous brutal face in spite of his formidable appearance he had a certain charm of manner he had a trick of resettling his spectacles on his nose which was curiously disarming in some indefinable way curiously civilised and They've never spoken, but he feels like he has a connection with this man. And he feels O'Brien like can talk into his head. Right. He hears O'Brien's voice in weird moments, which always made us wonder whether this is a a fever dream or a thing happening under mm. torture. or what, Why is O'Brien so prevalent in his mm. consciousness? Yes, he says he had a dream seven years ago where he was walking in a pitch-dark room and a voice says to him, we shall meet in the place where there is no darkness. And he realises it's O'Brien's voice. I mean, he's such a weird figure, O'Brien, because he's totally double in that if he is working for the resistance movement from inside the party at a very top level Winston fails all the tests and so would have to be destroyed like you would have to hand Winston over because Winston hasn't read the book like Winston is given his clear instructions as to how to join the resistance and he doesn't do them and so if you're O'Brien and you are recruiting people for the secret army Winston is a terrible recruit and so he's quite rightly handed over to the enemy I was always very struck by the fact that his name is so weird mm. that like in a, you obviously know Winston's called Winston Smith and then you get a lot of other people quite Britishy names like Charrington right. and Syme right. and Parsons they feel very sort of English counties and then O'Brien feels really other and different and I think Duncan pointed out to me at one point that it's, it's Ob-Rien sort of from nothing oh my and like is, God, is, 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 is that good. what it's about is oh, that what it's that trying to be good. but also this thing about him moving his glasses the whole time as if he's mm. like setting a lens I don't know, he, he's, yes, he's really calibrating or mysterious as a presence, and his presence in Winston's mind feels really oddly charismatic. Yes. When they go into O'Brien's apartments, into the posh inner party apartments, O'Brien does effectively a kind of communion ritual, gives them wine and then gives them a weird tablet that's designed to remove the taste of wine, but that is circular. Mm. And so he's like a kind of weird priesty, goddy figure. Yes, right. And the question is, is he saying, come to the party or come to the brotherhood? Mm. And, and deliberately, those two words are sort of interchangeable, right? Mm, that it's like mm. Big Brother, but the resistance to Big Brother is called the Brotherhood. Right. And it gets yes, a bit people's point. front of Judea, Judea and people's right, front. You're like, hang right. on, which is which? Um, which, again, must be done on purpose, yes, because yes. you're never quite clear whether any of these things are real or whether they're just set up to provide useful 
resistance to each other and that the whole system is actually functioning on some like 12 dimensional deep chess. Of course, because, <laughs> yes, right, because there's a, Winston has the idea that actually there's probably no war going on at all, that on the sort of macro level, these three super states in the world are just interchangeable and, right. you know, it's a state of being that the government can use to control the people. But yes, maybe, maybe yes, there may well be no resistance. I think the novel's so great on fear and anxiety and it's sort of, if people are scared, you've got way more chance of being able to get them to do things. And so, like, if you give them really clear fear objects, mm. and there's something about the whole technology, I guess, of the two minutes, hey, and Goldstein is this figure of the father of all resistance who left the party, the kind of fallen angel. Mm. It, it's really not very detailed about quite what Goldstein is going to do or what he wants to do, but it gives the population a really clear focus for all of that energy. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We're standing on the edge of Trafalgar Square now, in the very heart of London, with traffic all around us. It's a beautiful sunny day with the fountains flowing and Nelson's column here in the centre. And we're here because this is where Winston arranges to meet for the first time the girl that he's been noticing around the office. The girl who he comes to know as Julia. And first of all, I guess Rob, we could say that, you know, like his uh, housing block, which is called Victory Mansions, Trafalgar Square has been renamed Victory Square. 
instead of Nelson up there on the column, it's a statue of Big Brother. Or maybe it is the same statue, it's just being called Big Brother. Yeah. But Rob, introduce us to Julia. Who is this character? Well, Julia is a really good example, I suppose, at least we felt in the play that Julia operates in a kind of permanent double think for the reader. And either Julia is somebody who genuinely falls in love with Winston and lives this kind of wild anti-party countercultural life just below the radar. The other version is that she's a honey trap working for the party designed as kind of flypaper for wannabe terrorists. And and we, we got quite excited in the thinking about it for TV that actually you could really get into that backstory. Because of course it, she's very effective. Like she gives the, she gives him a weird note that says I love you at the point in the novel where he thinks he thinks the note's gonna say we're on to you. We know what you're thinking. Yes. Kill yes. yourself. Yes. So when he first start, describes her, there's something very ambiguous going on, isn't there? Because she seems to be the perfect face of the party. She's got this yeah. anti-sex league sash around her waist, and and his feelings towards her are really sort of aggressively violent at the beginning. horrendous, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and deeply misogynistic and sort yes, of... Yes, but there's, there's, all, there's a deep attraction there as well, you realise. So they decide to meet here because there's a political rally going on. There's some... That's uh, where there's cover, pr- isn't there? That's yeah. right, they're prisoners being paraded past cheering crowds of Oceanian citizens. And so they're able to meet side by side in this crowd. They don't look at each other, they're staring straight ahead at these um, prisoners being brought past, but they're able to touch hands briefly and they, they speak out of the corners of their mouths. And I've heard that as Orwell was writing this novel, he was falling in love with Sonia, his second wife, Sonia Brownell, who he met when they, she was working for Cyril Connolly on his uh, magazine Horizon. And it's interesting that Orwell was in his 40s when he met Sonia, when she was in her 20s. And mm-hmm. so there's this kind of uh, age difference between them in real life. And there's a similar age, I mean, age difference in the novel, isn't there? It's, um, he can't believe that she would be attracted to him. He's got varicose veins. Yeah. He's kind of... Um, but he's like 39, but he looks 60. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, there's something ambiguous about Julia, isn't there? All the way through. We're not yeah. sure. Not well, sure and sort of, is. and potentially, you're never quite given permission to trust her by the book. And in the same way, there's something about Orwell seems to know that he's ill, maybe that he's dying when he's redrafting 1984. And... There's something about Winston feverishly scribbling away yes. and Orwell feverishly scribbling away and a sort of thin, stooped... There's a sort of odd transparency about the whole Orwell-Winston thing anyway, I think. Yes. Slightly feverish about the whole... Well, let's whole talk operation. about that, the sort of the writing of this novel, because it's, it's so situated in a version of London. It's a very urban novel in lots of ways. But it was largely written in the most remote location that Orwell could find, which was borrowing a cottage on the Hebridean island of Jura off the west coast of Scotland. Mm. And I, I, do you know, I've actually been to the cottage where he wrote oh, it. Oh, wow. I, w- I, once, um, yeah, I, was on, I was on a holiday in Jura, and I, it turned out that the cottage I was renting was, also, <laughs> was owned by the same landlord who owns Barn Hill, the cottage where Orwell was living. Wow. And so we, in exchange for um, helping to shift a load of coal, we were allowed to go and see this um, place. And so I've been in the bedroom where Orwell, you know, dying of tuberculosis, was hammering away at this typewriter. And it's interesting to me that his working title for the book was The Last Man in Europe. Yeah. And there is a sense in which Winston talks about maintaining humanity. Just If he can stay sane, then he's kept hold of what it means to be human. Mm. And there's a sense in which the rest of the world has become inhuman. Mm. 
And I wonder if Orwell, you know, right on the edge of the world there, felt like he was, by writing this book, he was kind of making his final statement before he knew he was going to die himself. I mean, one of the things I think is so great about the title even is that you think, why is it called that? Is that... Is, is it one record on the shelf? Is there a 1984 part oh, two? Oh my God, yes. And you know, you're, you're taught by the appendix that the the document seems to have been edited. The document of the novel itself seems to be being looked at by another pair of eyes in an even more projected future from the future of the 1984 in the novel. And then you think, well, is this propaganda? Is this mm. an archive? Like, mm. w- what is the nature of the text that you're reading? Good point, especially as... Um, you know, every other record seems to be destroyed instantly in the fire. That's and, right. Um, or changed. Or changed, or changed. And there's moments where Winston is told, you know, you will not be remembered. You're yeah. going to be erased from history. Yeah. And yet we're reading his legacy. Well, and even weirder than that, there's a bit in the appendix. I mean, so the, the appendix of the whole novel is this kind of fairly dry text about Newspeak and about the adoption of Newspeak, which, of course, invites you to reflect on the fact that the novel itself is written in old speak. Mm. But the weirdest thing about it that Duncan and I found is that there's one footnote in the whole book on the, like the fifth or sixth page, and it says, the records department in which Winston Smith worked was, and it gives you a bit of detail, for more information, see appendix. And so you're asked to read the appendix at the very beginning of the book before you know anything. And even though Winston Smith apparently has been deleted from history and all the records have been removed, yet whoever wrote the appendix knows who Winston Smith was. And is, and, and is prepared and is, to drop him in by name. Right, and is living in a future where, which is beyond the party. And something yeah. has happened. That well, because Newspeak was never fully adopted. Yes, yes. And so like, you're, you're in this weird position at the end of the book of trying to understand quite what's happened. What is the future that, that, that appears to be talking back to us? I love how you, you pulled that out. And in, certainly in the, your stage production, you open the programme and that appendix is there and yeah. you really sort of forefront it. I think it's so clever because it was clearly really important to Orwell, that ambiguity. He, in, in 1948, when the American Book of the Month Club published 1984, they wanted to cut the appendix. That's right. And he wrote back, he absolutely refused, and he wrote back saying, a book is built up as a balanced structure and one cannot simply remove large chunks here and there unless one is ready to recast the whole thing. I really cannot allow my work to be mucked about. Well, so. and also there was a lot of... I, I remember reading about that, and it's like, you got a lot of money for being American Book of the Month. Like, it was a big payday. Right. And so him turning that down is not... He, he really believes, for some reason, that, that these cuts they're proposing can't go ahead. In a way, the great pastiche of 1984 is The Handmaid's Tale, which right. also has an appendix, which, all, which of course, yes, is that bit where, yes. where you find out what you've been reading this whole time is actually a transcription of some cassettes that have been left. And, and that is a direct hat yes. tip by Margaret yes. Atwood to right. saying, not only do I know about the appendix, but I understand how it functions, and I'm going to show you another version of exactly the same structure. Fantastic. She actually yes. came to see the play. We, we never... Really? I just saw on the show report one day in London that she'd been in, and, like, no, oh, no fuss was made, but she clearly just come to see the play. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm sure she'd have loved it. Just while we're here at Trafalgar Square, I feel like this is a good location to think about that ambiguity and doubleness of a novel, because it's such a famous place but the the world of the novel has co-opted it you know it's now called victory square and you know in some ways the novel is about the future and about how terrible things could be but it's also really about the present but mm. orwell knew you know it's these locations in london are very real and you know his descriptions of a terrorist attack when there's a, a hand left stranded on the roadside and you know he just lived through the blitz in london where this kind of anxiety and fear and destruction were just very real and very recent memory for people 
And so the, the way that a familiar place can suddenly be made totally unfamiliar yeah. was actually quite a sort of common experience. As well, he was and, and I think that word victory feels very different probably if you're writing at the end of the 40s yes. and you've lived through two probably very cathartic genuine moments of going oh thank god that's all finished yes you know yes. like that war is over and then then the vj you know the war in japan is then over and you think to us it feels very cynical you, the idea that everything is that the gin is called victory the apartments of victory mansions yes. this is victory square it, it seems like sort of rubbish branding but you wonder if for him that was much more he understood something much deeper mm. about the way those moments of collective triumph mm. really function the, the resonances have all changed, haven't of course, they, of those of things? Course. Both for us and also for, you know, for Winston and the novel. I mean, it's interesting that he says at one point he was, thinks he was born in 1945 or 1946, <laughs> yeah. and he's called Winston. Presumably, he's named after Winston Churchill, but that's he, right. he doesn't remember who that is or, or any... Yes, that's right. doesn't have that reference. Well, because presumably in his version of the 60s, the revolution seems to have taken place at some point in the 60s, which, of course, Orwell hasn't got to yet. Yes. And right. so the, it's the mid-60s roundabout where there's huge political upheaval, which, of course, is funny to us because the, our impression of what the 60s was in London is a completely different thing. <laughs> yes, right. Um, and the revolution is kind of social and cultural, not political. And again, it's a really interesting liminal moment in the novel itself where you think the revolution was a while ago, long enough ago that Julia doesn't really remember any of it. Yes, And right. Winston sort of does. Yes. But that we're not fully adopted. We're yeah. sort of we're between the two worlds. We're moving towards the Newspeak Dictionary but people are still speaking old speak. Mm. God, it's, God, it's so great talking to you about it, Rob. It really sort of, it, it makes it more exciting and more complicated to work it out. Oh, we got so, Duncan and I had amazing times just just trying to understand it. And we kept switching positions on things. As <laughs> um, I the thing I think the novel really invites. I can imagine it was great to do it with someone else because you oh, can God, have yeah. those debates. Amazing. You can do that flipping. Amazing. Yeah. And, and also we worked out Donk pointed out at one point it had taken us longer to write the adaptation than it took all world to write the novel because <laughs> we'd spent so much time going back and forward and arguing oh, and like amazing. working out how to do it he was somewhere in the vague brown coloured slums to the north and east of what had once been St Pancras station he was walking up a cobbled street of little two storey houses with battered doorways which gave straight on the pavement and which was somehow curiously suggestive of rat holes. So now we're standing, as in the novel, just a, a couple of streets north of St Pancras Station. It's, it's not a particularly small street. We're actually next to quite a busy thoroughfare. But we're standing outside a relic antique warehouse on Pancras Road, which, um, looking through the window, we can see is an absolute trove of old statues, siphon bottles, chandeliers, antiques and strange objects from the past. And a shop rather like this one features in 1984. It's a shop that Winston sort of stumbles across one day when he's been wandering through the labyrinth of the streets. And it's in fact where he bought the diary that he starts keeping at the beginning of the novel. And it's where he and Julia end up coming to rent a little back room where they feel safe and secure in this maze of streets away from party spying eyes. Rob, can you describe just how you present this, this room that they rent in the production? Because it's such a clever way of doing it, I think. Well, we, we set up at the beginning of the play that the implied rule is that you're going to watch all the play taking place in one space, which is a kind of wood-panelled, fairly nondescript 
could be any decade of, of several room. And that then when Winston goes off into the antique room, he walks onto a sort of filmic set, which is fully detailed and covered with antiques and has a little bed and sort of fits the description of what Orwell describes, but that you watch that filmed live on live cameras. And it's such a clever idea because in this space, Orwell writes, um, so long as they were actually in this room, they both felt no harm could come to them. But it's in the production, we, we immediately feel this nervous energy because already we're spectators sort of enjoying watching their lives unfold and now we're really kind of spying into their secret place this intimate private space is being projected onto a huge screen in front of us and of course perhaps the most dramatic moment in the novel is when this haven this little bower that they've established this little comfortable room with a bed and an armchair where they feel safe it's suddenly invaded by thought police. And you realize that, of course, it wasn't safe at all. They've been under surveillance the whole time. It, the paragraph goes, the head of the ladder had been thrust through the window and had burst in the frame. There was a stampede of boots on the stairs. The room was full of solid men in black uniforms with iron-shod boots on their feet and truncheons in their hands. And if I'm right, um, that moment in the play, the entire set explodes right it just collapses yeah we sort of they, they take it apart so you've been watching them on in the room on a screen and then suddenly i think julia looks into the camera mm. first as if she can see somebody and 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 suddenly their eyes are in the camera mm. and then the wall comes out and you can see the camera that they can see and then suddenly there's guards everywhere which in the various versions we've done have been all the actors all the stage managers all the understudies like all the technicians There's anybody we can find can, gets right. a gas mask a black <laughs> outfit and a, and a gun i always love it it's a sort of it's so much fun watching what you assume has been a permanent set yes suddenly just is revealed as being very flimsy indeed and just the, the, the boundaries of reality sort of shift it's one of it's i, I think of that moment often this was such a dramatic moment in the production and it's, it also reflects that aspect of reading the book as well because Winston talks about the privacy of what's going on inside his head. Mm. But we as readers are right there with him. We're, right. we're the sort of, we're closer to him than the telescreen. Well, and even when he's reading Goldstein's book, your eyes are moving across the words his eyes are moving across. So you're like, you're having this weirdly one-to-one -one intimate experience with him. When he stops reading, we stop reading. And so Winston's so paranoid about someone being inside his head and he's right to be because there is and it's ours. And that, that always felt really interesting to tell that story in a room full of people, all of whom are watching Winston. And like, if there is no Big Brother, there is definitely an element of surveillance, a very organic element of surveillance that there's 600 people sitting over there staring into Winston's yes, private yes. life. We should also say a little about um, Mr. Charrington, who runs this shop. You know, like O'Brien, he's one of the, You know, everyone is a slippery character in this, yeah. in this book, and he seems to be a kind of homely otherworldly um, man who he seems to be an ally and again in that incredibly dramatic moment when the when the room is stormed Mr. Charrington enters and he's completely transformed he's got his features have become harder he's he's much scarier and you realize that Winston says he realized for the first time he was knowingly looking at yeah. a member of the thought police yeah yeah and uh, that transformation is, is, is terrifying. We had an extraordinary actor called Stephen Fuel originate the role of Charrington in the play. Mm. And we couldn't manage to do this for the first time. But by the time we did it, I think in the West End, the, the second year of doing it, we, at his suggestion, pulled this trick where we had a wig maker replicate entirely his quite long hair 
and then he shaved his head. And so when he put the wig on, it looked exactly right because you just that, that's what that person was supposed to look like. And then in the moment of the capture, he used to remove the wig and, oh, and stand amazing. up straight. And it was it was like extraordinarily creepy because yes. you realised how much your brain had accepted that that's what that person looked like and that was fine. Yes, that is nice. Well, Winston and Julia are captured by the Thought Police. And so let's move from here to where they are taken to one of the scariest locations in the novel. The Ministry of Love was the really frightening one. There were no windows in it at all. Winston had never been inside the Ministry of Love, nor within half a kilometre of it. It was a place impossible to enter except on official business, and then only by penetrating through a maze of barbed wire entanglements, steel doors and hidden machine gun nests. Even the streets, leading up to its outer barriers, were roamed by gorilla-faced guards in black uniforms, armed with jointed truncheons. It's a really terrifying description of this location. Very early in the novel, that description comes. And you, you kind of sense that at some point in the novel, Winston is going to end up inside this terrifying building. And we're standing outside the building that was the model for the Ministry of Love, the BBC Broadcasting House on Portland Place, which bears a sort of family resemblance to the Senate House Library. It's, it's similar period. It was completed in 1932, and it's a similarly white stone monolithic building with a great impressive um, frontage, a big clock face at the top, and a slightly sinister-looking Eric Gill sculpture of, um, I think, Prospero and Ariel on top of a globe. And the reason that Orwell chose this as a location is that he worked here during the Second World War on the Eastern Overseas Service, writing war commentaries, sort of propagandistic accounts of how Britain was getting on in the Second World War and then broadcasting it to Asia. And it was during that job that he conceived this place as this um, horrific, shining ministry in the novel. Rob, it, it strikes me as um, the role of media in the novel is really fascinating. The, the Times of London, the sort of famously establishment old newspaper has become the entirely partisan mouthpiece of the party and as we've already said any sense of truth in any news that's reported has evaporated was that something you tried to bring through in your adaptation of the novel for us the central principle is is double think which is is his notion that you can hold two contradictory ideas in your head and believe both of them equally. If you say that black is white, you, you believe that black is now white, but also at the same time, you know that it's not really. Yes. And that always felt really theatrical because you know the actors are just actors and it's not real and no one's really getting tortured. And at the same time, for the duration of the theatrical experience, you also don't know that on some level. Um, that, that's the weirdest thing about the media in 1984, as, as he tries to set it up, I think, is that it's... It's all double think. So, like, you know it might be lies, but you also know it might be true. Right. And that everyone lives in this weird middle territory where maybe there is a war with East Asia and maybe there isn't, and maybe there is. And it's, I think it's all about instability. It's like you just, you can't even know anything. Yes. It's not that you, you're not even sure enough that it's a lie. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> There's an interesting line that the novelist Thomas Pynchon wrote a preface to 1984 in, in 2003, and he has this line where he says, our nominally free news media today 
are required to present balanced coverage in which every truth is immediately neutered by an equal and opposite one. Mm. And I think the BBC has been criticised for doing exactly that recently, presenting such an even-handed take on the issues of today, but actually it's hard to know what to... You know, people have such strong and differing opinions, it's mm. hard to come out with any sense of what the actual truth is. Well, then it feels like it's become... People say things like, oh, I don't read mainstream media... As if, as if that's a kind of like a dietary choice. Right. I, I don't know, I sometimes think it's like the sort of, I prefer my information gluten-free. It's like, I don't like, I'm allergic to fact-checking. I, I, just, I just prefer un, unvarnished opinion, um, which, is, which is fine, I guess, but then you understand why people get so frightened and so angry. Yes. Um, just around the corner from here, recently a, a statue of George Orwell has been put up just outside um, New Broadcasting House with a line that he wrote from the preface to Animal Farm where he says, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. Mm. I find that an interesting line because he wrote it after he'd written Animal Farm. I assume while he was thinking about the next novel that he was sort of brewing. And I feel like that line is, could apply just as equally to 1984 as it does to Animal Farm. Well, then in a strange way, like Animal Farm is not about misinformation. Like Animal Farm is, is much more about it's a rule of force on some level. There's a little bit of it, but like the world of 1984 is much more about what you can get out of people by making them scared. If you make them scared and angry, you can get them to do all sorts of things. Whereas Animal Farm is much more, you know, once they've got the dogs, everyone's terrified yeah, and they can right. just like, they just rule brutally. Um, and it feels more, I don't know, there's, there's, there's something strange, isn't there, at this moment with, with the sort of the virus and the vaccines and so on, where you think, how, how much do we want an anti-scientific point of view to balance the scientific one? Like, how much is that useful? Yes, um, exactly. And is that something we should expect people to provide? I think also that you get the sense that newspeak in a novel is newspeak as opposed to old speak. But I think there's also a sense in which it's news speak. It's a sort of, you know, the, as we were saying, the Times is, mm. you know, the, the mouthpiece of the party. And it's also the place where this new language is, is kind of forged. You know, they describe how... At the time the novel is set, not everyone speaks in Newspeak, but the only place where it's pure Newspeak is the editorials of the Times, where, where it's this kind of work of art where someone has used this new language to write this article and it's, it's sort of ahead of its time. I think Winston is praised as well, isn't he, at one point for his writing in Newspeak? Right, yes. So, someone's read, I think O'Brien has read something and says how elegant his writing is. Mm. So much of the, the so-called culture war is a battle fought on the plane of language. And it's about the terminologies, the offensiveness in terms of terminology mm. and what the most up-to-date and therefore least harmful, least offensive thing is. People now use problematic to mean unworthy of any attention rather than having problems. Right. And you sort of feel how that slippage has happened. But I do think we've become, partly because of social media, where people express themselves through short nuggets right. of language, yes. we've become much more... We, we jump on language now in a way that, that feels much more immediate than it did. Well, and, and I feel like the use of um, emoticons and emojis yeah. now, it's like, it's a kind of a shorthand for language, which is exactly what Newspeak is all about, about condensing sometimes quite complicated ideas into a single word or Hieroglyphic, a single... Hieroglyphic, yeah, yeah. One, one jab. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think, I feel like it's quite appropriate that this sort of beacon of broadcasting and, and media is, is sort of flipped on its head in the novel and it's, it's this building has becomes the sort of insular, windowless, inward-looking epicentre of this new regime. If you haven't read 1904, we don't want to spoil all the twists and turns, but Winston does eventually end up inside the Ministry of Love 
and he heads towards perhaps the most famous location from this book, which is, of course, Room 101. And we can find that just around the corner. It was in a high-ceilinged, windowless cell with walls of glittering white porcelain. Concealed lamps flooded it with cold light, and there was a low, steady humming sound, which he supposed had something to do with the air supply. So we're walking up Portland Place now. We've moved beyond the main building of BBC Broadcasting House. Portland Place is a wide, smart street lined with trees down the centre of it. And in the past, various of these buildings were used as offices by the BBC. And we're approaching number 55, Portland Place, which is where George Orwell had to sit through these meetings of the Eastern Services Committee, which apparently he found so interminably dull that he chose that office number, room 101, to be the most terrifying room in all of literature. Passing various high commissions and embassies. I was going to say, yeah, it's like posh real estate around here. Yeah. Here it is. Okay, here we are. We're standing outside 55 Portland Place. Rather imposing building, another sort of edifice of white stone. I, th I believe the building that's standing here today is not the same building that was here when Orwell was in his meetings here. And to be honest, it looks rather a sort of luxurious uh, complex of offices rather than um, the epicenter of torture that it is in the novel. Now, all the way through the novel, Winston has a recurring nightmare of a wall of darkness and he knows that something on the other side of that darkness is the most unendurable thing that he can imagine, but he doesn't, his mind doesn't let him get there. It says at one point that it, it would be like wrenching a part of his brain out to work out what was there behind the wall of darkness. Orwell writes, he thought again of the cellars of the Ministry of Love. It was curious how that predestined horror moved in and out of one's consciousness. There it lay, fixed in a future time, preceding death as surely as 99 precedes 100. And of course, it's room 101 where the really terrible thing happens. And the thing about the room 101, right, is that it's different for every person. It's whatever your most terrible fear is, is what you find in that room. And for Winston, it's rats. And I suppose this is the most scary thing about the novel because all the way through that he and Julia cling to the hope that the only place that is private to them is their own heads. At one point it says the only private space is a few cubic centimetres inside your skull. But then he realises that actually in room 101 they can get inside even that privacy. When I, and again I guess room 101 is another phrase that's been captured by the culture and turned into a yeah, kind of TV programme. Yes, right. I, I, it's interesting, isn't it, because it's sort of the argument seems to be that fear beats love in the game of like emotional top trumps and that you can mm. make Winston betray Julia by presenting him with something he's terrified of. Certainly during the play, I think Duncan and I felt that the scary thing is the existential. The scary thing is that you might, you might not be able to know anything about who you are, what you think, or why you think mm. it. I love the idea that there's a thing we're all more scared of and we can't access. And yet somehow when that thing is rats, I go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the expectation it of it. It's yeah, more, yeah, 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 yes. Exactly. Turns out it was rats. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's, there's something, yes. it, just, it reduces yes. very fast at that moment. 
But then maybe the idea that's most scary is the idea that it's whatever is most scary. So, you know, it's the idea yeah. of being scared. That's we we all have scary. a lever that you could yes. use, a mental yes. lever that would cause us to let go of anything we thought we were. And there's another point in the book, isn't there, where, where Winston talks about, and you feel this is all well talking through him, where he says that the real sort of limits of what we're capable of are the limits of our own human body. Mm. That, you know, however idealistic or mm. heroic you might want to feel, in any moment of crisis, if you're suddenly being inflicted with pain or fear or your, your body expands to fill your entire universe, mm. you, you've got no space for higher feelings of love or loyalty or, um, or idealism. That's right. Politics is, is yeah. lesser than yes. pain. Yes, yeah. right. Which I guess is the argument of torturers the world over, mm. that like, mm. we wouldn't do torture unless unless it was useful, you know, mm-hmm. unless it got results. And clearly it does get results. Mm-hmm. Clearly, and also because he's ill when he's, when he's redrafting. Yes, th- there's a real, right. there's a sort of really visceral bodily sense yes. of, of what it's like to be in a feverish, overheated... And a racking cough that would sort of yeah. stop him actually being able to type. Yeah. Well, and you feel it, like all that stuff about how decrepit Winston is, and, and, and he's, he's, everything's sore and his knees ache and like mm. he sort of feels elderly must be a sort of Orwell's own kind of wheezing, failing body just bleeding through into the book. Well, now we've arrived at at this sort of most terrifying centre of the novel and the sort of climax of the novel. Rob, what is the pervasive power of this novel? Why does it continue to capture the imagination so much? Well, I I think you used the word myth earlier on and I think it has become... It's become a kind of mythic structure. Uh Uh-huh. Big Brother ruling over us, Big Brother watching us, whether one individual can resist huge, unknowable power structures. When we were in rehearsals for the play, there was a sort of... The first time we made it was a really odd moment where the Woolwich murders happened, where where Lee Ripley was murdered in the street, and the press were pretty much saying, why didn't we know about this? Why didn't we know more about this? Mm. And you thought, well, because that would need a level of surveillance that we might find really creepy. And then, of course, not very long after, I think in the same rehearsal period, the Snowden revelations came and, and suddenly everyone was going, my God, surveillance is terrible. And you thought, well, you kind of can't have that one both ways. Mm. It's either mm. like, okay, I want them to know about terrorists and so if they read my email, they read my email. I don't care. Or you're like, no, you're not reading my email, but I accept that there are plenty of other people who might be doing terrible things whose, whose email is also not going to be read. It's kind of freedom and slavery again, isn't yeah. it? We sort of want to be free by being enslaved yeah but like it's it, it's a so i think it sits in territory that still feels very resonant but i also think it's, it's done this very odd thing of of having a almost a stronger afterlife than the novel itself mm. the, the the buzzwords of it the concepts it creates just it's sort of it's set phrases have been absorbed into the language yes and i i, I just i don't know of other texts that have done that trick and it, it's extraordinary that you've been working on this novel so closely in this particular period, almost 10 years now you've been working on this book, but it's a 10 years that's seen a total transformation in AI around the world and the massive proliferation of social media, like lots of these technological advances which feel like they're plugging into this very world that Orwell is kind of imagining. It's amazing that you've been so close to this book throughout that particular decade. Well, and even on the day we're speaking to each other, yesterday there was a big thing about cyber security surveillance and you just think, yeah, of course there's going to be mm. or William will be rocked out as an adjective again to talk about that mm. because it's to do with mm. surveillance. But it does. It feels like it was, in a really unusual way, genuinely ahead in terms of the anxieties the book has about being watched and not knowing the truth. Mm. 
we've really caught up with it. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how long that'll last. I wonder whether that'll still be true in another hundred years. I remember feeling in the novel in a strange way that there's a there's a potential philosophical corner to turn, isn't there, whereby you just go, I know I don't know anything. You know, like, I know that it's all untrustworthy. I just choose my information for the day I'm going to have. Mm. And I wonder whether... At the moment, it feels like the the planks of our, our idea of truth and reason and rationality and objective reality and all these things are kind of shaking underneath the pressure of the internet. And you wonder at what point they'll shatter. And we'll all just go, oh, well, just we don't know, do we? we who knows? Who knows? Like toss a coin. Oh, my God. Well, on that suitably unsettling note, <laughs> Robert, let's bring this to an end. Thank you so much for joining us here. It's been such a pleasure talking about 1984 with you. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Many thanks to Robert Icke, to the Penguin Audio team for the clips of Peter Capaldi's reading of 1984, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, you may be relieved to know that the original Room 101 was demolished in 2003, a hundred years after Orwell's birth. Before it disappeared, though, the artist Rachel Whiteread flooded it with plaster to make an enormous plaster cast, which she called Untitled Room 101. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.